What is up, Silent Strong community? Coach Jordan coming at you for another episode. Uh, I'm fired up. This is an amazing episode. We've got Dr. Sam Spinelli. Uh, we talk about all things knee health. Uh, we talk about E3 rehab. We talk about the downfalls of typical physical therapy and doctor-related um, stuff. I'm just fired up. This is going to be a good one. Uh, a ton of good nuggets. Let's get into it. All right. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, as I mentioned before, we have a very special guest, as always, because, you know, all of our guests are special. But today we've got Dr. Sam Spinelli from E3 Rehab, and we're slowly creeping our way up, up the Instagram world. Last week we had uh, Aaron Kubal, and, uh, you know, we're getting more notoriety as we go here. So for those of you who don't know Sam, uh, Sam, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? I'm a doctor of physical therapy and a strength conditioning coach. I'm located out in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. I've been a little bit all over the place in the previous history. I've worked out in Alberta for a long time in the professional sports scene there. And then I've been out in Boston, Chicago, uh, different parts of California, and uh, yeah, all over. Now I'm settled here. I own a facility. We offer strength conditioning, really emphasize youth athletics. And then I uh, have some stuff for adult populations as well. And then I just make tons and tons of content for fitness, rehab, et cetera. Yeah. And just for clarity, if again, for those of you who aren't familiar with Sam's stuff, uh, Sam heads a company called E3 Rehab, ton of great resources on YouTube and you guys have your own podcast, all that kind of stuff. So definitely check that yeah. out. And I'll pop it in the, the show notes below just because, you know, thank you. People don't like typing things into Google sometimes for some reason. Um, what got you into physio, Sam? Well, I was a strength conditioning coach and I worked with uh, primarily professional hockey players. I found myself in this trap where I'd be working with individuals that either come back from the season after they were done and they'd be banged up, have different injuries that were limiting us from training. I wouldn't know exactly what to do with them. Their physios wouldn't always give me direct clarity or guidance on what they could do, what they couldn't do. It was often just this blanket. They can't lift. They can't do lots of stuff. They can't do anything. In reality, they probably could have done many things. And there was no um, option for me to be in the process of supporting them either. It was that the physio did all the rehab stuff and I was just doing my thing separately. And I found that it was really frustrating. I wanted to be able to offer more services to my athletes and also understand how we could be somewhere in between that world because it seemed too limited to have them completely divided. And there was other strength and conditioning coaches at a high level who were beginning to blend those lines. Guys like Charlie Weingroff and then Kelly Sturette started to emerge at that time. And so I decided that I would take the leap and go and get my physical therapy degree. And that's where I went off to. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it seems like from both ends, it's kind of happening, right? A lot of strength coaches are trying to get into the the injury risk reduction side. And a lot of physios seem to be going into the performance side of things as well. So it seems like we're meeting in this middle ground and it's cool to see uh, the coalition between the two approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think once you get into the nitty gritty details of the research on it, it just makes sense that they should be a lot more blended than divided. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk yeah, before we go into too many rabbit holes. Uh, why do we have Sam here? Because otherwise I'm just going to keep going. Um, one thing that we haven't touched on yet with the Side of Stormer podcast is knee pain. And obviously in the volleyball population, uh, knee pain and in, knee injury risk reduction is such a huge topic. 
uh, whether we're high level performing athletes in college or university settings or just recreational uh, adult leagues, because we always want to be able to play for life. We want to be uh, sustainable, powerful athletes, and all that good stuff. And it's really hard to play with pain and nobody wants it. So that's going to be our general scope of today's topic. And obviously, Sam's got a lot of experience um, dealing with knee pain and helping people uh, re- reduce their risk of knee pain and how to deal with it uh, if it comes up. So I want to kind of start this conversation around the two bigger categories of knee pain that I see in, uh, the way I, the way I think about it, at least from a non-physio perspective. And the first being acute settings, and then the second being chronic. So if we're talking acute. What, what's that kind of look like, Sam? Um, so for me, I kind of dichotomize these a bit further. And just because I think that it, it is valuable from a treatment standpoint, and whenever we're looking at acute, it's usually just this general time frame factor where it's, you know, you've got pain that has been on for less than 12 weeks. That's like the standard definition of it. However, <clears throat> whether someone has pain for less than 12 weeks or more than 12 weeks, it doesn't inherently change what you do. What does distinctly change what you would do, though, is whether it is a traumatic injury or a non-traumatic injury. Right. And, <clears throat> you know, if someone has knee pain, that comes on after they woke up from sleeping, not having done anything overly challenging the day prior. Um, that is very different than the individual who jumps, lands, and boom, instant knee pain. Those two individuals will likely be treated differently, approached differently. The course of assessment should differ between them, et cetera. So I think that deciding whether we have a more traumatic or just a um, non-specific presentation is valuable. Yeah. Love it. Love that different characterization. So we, you, you mentioned landing funny. Um, are there any other examples of kind of traumatic, uh, traumatic, uh, revenue? Re- oh my gosh. Stuck in the word traumatic experiences or traumatic injuries, uh, that we'd be, be exposed to that people should kind of be aware of. Uh, for specifically folks on, on the knee, there's a number of ones for sure, especially in the context of volleyball, you got, in the odd time where an individual contacts another player, whether it's directly at the knee, that's less common in volleyball, but it will happen. Uh, another one that happens more often is where a, a player lands on another player or um, they collide in the air. It's different factors like that. So those are sometimes called um, contact injuries, uh, whereas like the jump and land is a non-contact injury. And then you have the person goes to plant and cut. The person yeah. goes to um, take a step and decelerate the person, um, is in the act of getting ready to jump. The person dives, um, the person contacts their knee on the ground. Those are the major ones in volleyball. Cool. So if we were talking from a practical standpoint and generalities, obviously, because we're not diagnosing anybody from here, um, what would the general approach be? Like, would there be red flags that you're looking for? Do you have any recommendations if somebody goes through a traumatic injury uh, in terms of next steps or things to look for? Whenever I'm working with individuals, I'm a huge, huge medical conservatist. So in the vast majority of cases, I have individuals shy away from seeking further care as often as possible, because I think number one, it's a burden on the healthcare system. And we're both in Canada. We have um, a universal healthcare system. So I'd rather not dive into those funds if unnecessary. Secondly, I think that the overarching medical system 
really has a lot of catastrophization provoking things in it, which will encourage the person to likely be in a worse state than actually necessary. And so the general rules are like, there's uh, a various numbers of various number of ones. So I'll try to do my best to keep it condensed, but the overarching one, just because we're talking about adult populations more common is uh, there's this thing called the Ottawa knee rule. And uh, uh, a lot of people maybe have heard of the Ottawa anchor rules, really similar. It's this uh, scoring criteria, very basic, either you can or can't do a number of different things. And uh, it helps to decide the likelihood of like a fracture. And uh, essentially it can be used to decide whether you need to go get an x-ray because if you score enough points, you have a suspe- uh, possible fracture. It's very basic things like, can you bear weight on your leg? Do you have um, like 10 out of 10 pain at a uh, isolated spot on your knee, et cetera, stuff like that. Like that, uh, the two locations on the knee, I believe are the patella and the uh, tibial tuberosity. I think those are the two. Not confident on those. The auto anchor rules are ones I use way more often. Yeah. Um, but then when it comes to the knee, the bigger ones for most people, especially in the context of volleyball, is going to be, do you have direct swelling on your knee? And this is swelling following the traumatic incident. Because in cases where we have, <clears throat> for instance, like an ACL tear, we are very likely to see acute swelling. And not like a tiny bit. Like we're going to have a lot of swelling. Do you have a significant amount of bruising? Um And again, this is not like a little bit of redness. This is a lot of bruising, usually coinciding with swelling. Then do you have instability of your knee? And this isn't like, oh, I put my foot down and my knee feels a little bit wobbly because maybe my quads aren't contracting as well as it could. This is like, I plant my foot and the, my inside of my joint is sliding back and forth against one, one another. And it makes me feel sick because it's so unstable. That's like a we need to go see somebody. Um, and then the last one is, is your patella popping in and out? So, um, each of those is more common to occur in a number of reasons. The most uh, relevant for volleyball again is like an ACL injury, just because again, ACL injuries are one of the more frequent injuries in volleyball. And then the second one is patellar subluxations or dislocations, which uh, is more frequent as well in volleyball. So those would be the major ones to watch for. Otherwise, pretty much everything else, I would not call a red flag. Usually the stuff, like whether you have anterior knee pain around the pole of your, uh, around the bottom of your knee, top of your knee. So either those tendons, if you got pain on the medial portion of your knee, pain on the lateral portion of your knee, pain on the backside of your knee, all of these things can almost always be managed conservatively. And you will, even if they quote unquote, couldn't be managed conservatively, you likely have the same results, whether it's surgical or non-surgical management. So just in general, unless you have a big, scary thing going on, you're best off going down the path of doing um, a exercise protocol based rehab plan, seeing if it improves things. If it doesn't, then go get management because they're usually going to want you to try that anyways. And even in cases where someone has to get surgery, they consistently have better results if they did an exercise plan before surgery. So just when in doubt, do an exercise plan. Yeah. And just to be super clear, when you say conservative management, you're talking about like low level, like introductory exercises. We're talking about movement as opposed to like surgical options. Just for those of uh, us at home. That yeah, it wouldn't necessarily home. have to be, wouldn't necessarily have to be low level, but right. Yeah. Anything that's essentially, uh, the, the general is, 
if it's non-conservative, it's basically surgery. And if it's not surgery, it's conservative. So that could be more than just exercise. Like there could be massage, um, sometimes injections, stuff like that. But more often than not, when we're discussing conservative management, it's going to be in the context of exercise-based rehab. Cool. Yeah. Love it. Um, that whole conversation at the beginning about catastrophizing in hospitals is something I want to touch on a lot more. And we'll probably do an entire podcast at some point um, because it's a massive uh, topic, obviously. If for, the, for people that aren't exposed to this kind of line of thinking yet, could you give the, the 30 second version of, of what typically happens when somebody goes into that kind of setting, if they're in a, a situation that's we, we would call non-ideal? Yeah. So the first thing is that people are always trying to do their best. I never think that individuals are not, you know, you go and see a physician, you go and see a orthopedic surgeon, you go see anybody. They're always trying to do their best. However, what the best thing is for someone is not always directly clear. And we have a lot of evidence that is constantly being updated and emerging on what might be more important than other things. And right now we've had a huge breadth of research emerge across the last decade or so about the value of minimizing catastrophizing. So what catastrophizing is, is essentially where someone begins to have one piece of information and they start to spiral downwards that it is worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And we see regularly that catastrophization is associated with a longer duration of symptoms. Um, increased number of uh, treatment sessions, increased number of usage of me medical systems, et cetera. So if we have two people that both experience the exact same injury and one person doesn't catastrophize and one person does, there's a good chance that the person that doesn't will get better faster, will use the medical system less and overall feel better. So then why do people catastrophize? There's a number of reasons for it. The most common is that the person is told information that sounds scary, whether or not that information is actually scary. And that's really vague, but it comes down to a lot of times like the conversation that people have with different medical professionals, because they're often the ones that are doing this stuff. So for instance, like if just the other week I had someone come in to see me and um, they're a basketball player, they suffered a contact knee injury. So they had knee on knee while they were um, trying to navigate around another player. And in their case, they suffered a grade two sprain of their ACL. So like they, they quote unquote tore their ACL, but it wasn't a full on tear, like all sorts of factors to it. And I didn't tell this person that they tore their ACL. Um, I told the person that they have a slight injury to it and that this is you know, not a big deal. We see this very regularly. This can be managed very well through just, you know, reducing their playing time, adjusting how they are practicing for the next while. We can do some exercise-based protocols for this to improve the quality of their muscular support, their neuromuscular function, et cetera, to reduce um, symptoms and likelihood of having any further issues with it. And the ACL can also heal within reason and all these different things. And the person felt good, no issues. Whereas on the flip side, I could have said, hey, you tore your ACL and we're going to need to get this further investigated and uh, you might not be able to play anymore. And those two things are both conversations that will happen with the same injury. And one is likely to have better outcomes than the other. And that's sort of uh, where it goes. It's just like, you know, all these different things that come down to how do we explain what are findings, what are possibilities, 
Um, how do we navigate the conversation with the person so that they don't freak out about it? It doesn't mean to lie to the person or not inform them, but it just means that, you know, the situation is often not as scary as someone thinks, you know, like the, I know we're talking about knees, but like a common one is like someone has a disc herniation and they find that on imaging and the doctor tells them that they have a disc herniation. And the problem with that is that, you know, somewhere around 25 up to 78% of people have a disc herniation at rest, depending on your age. And so it, depending on your age, it could be a 50, 50 likelihood that you had a disc herniation completely unrelated to your back pain. And even in the case of disc herniations, they self-resolve relatively quickly, all these factors, but they're just not informed of that. And so then they catastrophize because they're like, Oh my gosh, I have a disc herniation. I have back pain. I have all these things. And they just spiral downwards about how they will no longer be able to do the meaningful activities in their life. And it starts a very dangerous slippery slope. So that's sort of the general premise of catastrophization. Yeah. Oh, love it. And it's, it's way too frequent, right? Or we'll dive into some of this other stuff, but catastrophization plays into so many other things. We'll talk about like long-term knee pain and what we chronic or non, non-traumatic knee pain and how that, how that plays into this narrative as well. But let's talk about that a little bit and then we'll bring it back home. So we've talked about the traumatic side where it's, you know, the, the ACL tears, the, uh, the acute settings. What about the other side of things? So I'm thinking for the chronic side where we have a longer um, duration or not a specific event where things get angry. So I'm thinking things like uh, arthritis or jumper's knee or that kind of thing. Um, is that the characterization you use? I know it's a bunch of words there, but is it considered chronic anymore? Or is there a different name for it now? Again, personally, not a huge fan of like chronic or any of those terms, just because at the end of the day, timeline is sort of irrelevant. Right. Um, in my opinion, maybe non-traumatic uh, is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like at the end of the day, if someone has quote unquote jumper's knee or any of these kinds of ones, it's usually not directly traumatic. Like sure. Maybe you jumped up and down and you felt pain that has gradually increased across time. So with those things, they're not scary. Um, they can be managed very well. We have lots of evidence to support ways to manage them. The challenge usually comes to which is that people often end up with health practitioners who don't know the current state of the research on these different conditions. And they are managed questionably to say the least. Um, we have a fair bit of research that shows that there are a lot of things that you can do to help someone in the short term. And those things don't necessarily create long-term effects. And there are things that we can do for people that might not have a huge short-term effect, but have a much more meaningful long-term impact. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people find care and focus on care that is short-term focused and not necessarily long-term focused because you know, it's human nature to want results instantly. Um, but the two things are often not mutually exclusive and people, um, both from a provider standpoint and patient side, just end up heavily focusing on the short-term and missing out key things on the long-term. So... Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. No, yeah, it's, it starts it very well. Um, so what are some examples of the shorter term uh, implements that, you know, they feel good in the short term, but may not be doing much in the long term? Yeah, and again, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. They have right. value. If someone has extreme knee pain that's limiting them from walking, doing basic activities, 
I think that there's merit in doing these things. My biggest problem is when they are the centerpiece of treatment over the long term and they're the centerpiece of treatment when someone's not that symptomatic. Um, so, for example, a number of ones that are, again, have merit, but not necessarily long term beneficial are things like massage, um, active release therapy, dry needling, adjustments, um, manual therapy interventions, ultrasound, um, cupping, pretty much anything where the person is having things done to them, you can pretty much point to as that category. And on the other side of the spectrum, uh, where it's longer term impact, but you know, maybe not as much short term relief, what would be on that spectrum? Yeah, this one I keep down to relatively simple options of number one, education, number two, activity modification, three, lifestyle modification, and then four, graded activity slash exposure. Um, so those can sound really uh, general, but at the end of the day, we have education, which means helping the person understand what is going on, uh, having a general idea of the timeline, course of treatment, natural history, things that are relevant to their condition. It might not, again, make a huge change in the short term, but it provides the person with a realistic view of the condition, what is quote unquote normal, and decreases the likelihood of them to catastrophize. Then you have activity modification, which is where we take whatever the person is doing. So in the case of volleyball, you would modify their games, modify their practices, modify their training, et cetera, in a way that allows a person's pain to be much more manageable and be facilitated to go in the positive direction. Um, I don't work with a ton of volleyball players. Um, I work with a lot of basketball players, so there's some similarities. Mm -hmm. But as an example, when I'm working with the guys that have guys or girls that have knee pain, we're often going to be looking at the number of steps that they do in practice. We're going to be looking at the number of drills that they run. We're going to be looking at the types of drills, the velocity of those drills, the impact associated with them. And then we're going to be scaling them back where it's relevant. So for instance, if someone has anterior knee pain, normally deceleration, so whether that's slowing down from a run or slowing down from landing from a jump, those things are often fairly symptomatic. So are there ways that we can change those things? For instance, like if a person's doing a drill where they can continue to run past where they would normally have to stop and just carry forward. So that might require changing where the drill is done in the basketball court. Um, instead of landing from a jump, are they able to do the drill where they go up and then stop before the jump? Are they able to do changes like that initially? And then over time, as we see an improvement in symptoms, we start to progress those drills and then, similar approach with the lifestyle modifications and management. You look at things that could be contributing to symptoms, such as, you know, we see that a very high association between low sleep and symptoms of pain or lack of function. So if the person is low in sleep, can we increase that? If the person has okay amount of sleep, but they have low quality of sleep, can we change that? If the person has poor nutrition, poor hydration, um, they have a lot of stress with their work associated with it. They have a lot of stress in their home life, et cetera. Are there any of these things that we can modify or manage in some way? Because while it might not be the sole thing contributing to their symptoms, it might be a component to their symptoms. And then the last one is the quote unquote, like graded exercise, graded exposure, different terms that you could apply to it. But at the end of the day, it's about finding things that either are directly stressful to the area or are relevant to supporting the area and then exposing the knee slash person to it. And then again, grading it up over time. So this might come in many different forms, like 
you know, the person has, again, anterior knee pain, most common in volleyball, that jumper's knee area. And we might choose something like a heel elevated squat to start off with, because it is a directly stressful movement for that area. And we'll grade it to where they're just doing body weight, half rep, et cetera, and then increase the rep uh, length, increase the rep time, increase the resistance on it, and then go to single leg versions of it and continue that progression until we get to the point where the person has no more symptoms. And we just keep progressing that, trying to increase the person's tolerance to the stress and improve the person's capacity for the stressors that they experience. Yeah, I think this is important to dive into just for half a second here, because um, a lot of people might have the might have a view that's contradictive to that. And they might say, hey, my, my knee hurts. I need less, not more, right? Because in some ways we're saying back off in terms of the intensity or volume or uh, those kind of factors when it comes to training. But we're also saying, hey, we need to directly load the knee or the surrounding structures or supporting structures. Um, so maybe we'll just talk about that for a little bit in terms of why more stress isn't necessarily bad in some settings. Yeah, I think it comes down to a number of different components and it is very confusing to people, which I understand. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing is that, you know, the amount of repetitions and velocities, et cetera, that someone experiences in sporting practice is way more than in the gym. And that can be very confusing to people because like, you know, you watch someone back squat 300 pounds, you're like, oh, that's way more stressful than landing a jump. And in reality, it's actually not when we look at the loads that are experienced on, especially in the context of like the patellar tunnel, it's um, actually not more. And these higher velocity movements can often be much more impactful. So that's where, if possible, changing those things, reducing those things and allowing to go to like slower options, like in the gym, et cetera, and ramping up to build more abilities for the area that we're discussing can be beneficial. And it also depends upon too, if we are going down the path of considering that there's certain tissues that might be specifically needing to be supported or addressed, there are ways that we can better do that um, in the gym sometimes than on the, the court or the field, et cetera. So for example, like let's say the person again has anterior knee pain, most common example, jumper's knee, same sort of thing in case that hasn't been clear yet. Um, individuals will often have a few deficits or um, limitations. Number one is that it's very common that they have a reduced ability for knee extension strength or knee extension torque, the ability to produce, you know, a strong quad contraction type movement. And while you could get your quads stronger through playing volleyball, it's likely going to be a faster route to do it in the gym because we can directly load the quads and directly do things that we can structure and organize and plan to progress, et cetera, and give it a direct stimulus to create that strength adaptation. And that will likely transfer over faster to volleyball. And if we just keep volleyball at the same volume, same prescription, et cetera, where this person has pain and add on the stuff in the gym, they're likely going to have more pain and more symptoms. Whereas if we say, okay, in the short term, we need to reduce things in volleyball. So that way we can address this stuff in the gym, uh, wherever we're doing it. And that way we can maximize their function in the long term. Then we need to create those changes and stressors overall. Another factor is 
with this anterior knee pain, it's possible for some individuals that it might be associated with their tendon, whether it's their patellar tendon, their quadriceps tendon, et cetera. And when we're looking at the research on having tendon adaptations, it seems to be fairly important that we have two key variables to stimulate an appropriate adaptation of the tendon. Number one, the movement needs to generally be slower. It doesn't have to be crazy slow, but it needs to, usually when we're looking at like a rep cadence, it's around three seconds up, three seconds down ballpark. You know, it could be a little bit faster, a little bit slower, but around that. So essentially when you compare that to volleyball, you're never moving that slow, not a thing. So you're not necessarily going to get direct tendon adaptations from that standpoint. And then the second thing is that it seems to require a fairly heavy load. Um, in general, above 70% of someone's one rep max, if we're discussing things like back squat, leg press, et cetera. And so when you consider that, you can't get that kind of stress or stimulus in volleyball. You're just never going to be jumping um, with a slow movement where you're also able to have that kind of force output. Whereas again, if we go to the gym, you can do leg press, you can do back squats, you can do leg extensions, you can do all sorts of movements where you can slow that sucker down, force the quad tendon or patellar tendon to be loaded, do it nice and slow and make it really heavy. And again, um, in the short term, that might make jumping and other movements more symptomatic, but in the long term, it is likely to be more beneficial if that's what the person specifically needs. Yeah. And there's a lot of factors that go into this, but is there a shortened uh, framework that you follow to see what the person needs, or is it just highly specific to the person that's in front of you? Yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first thing I do is I ask the person, where's their pain at the end of the day, it, it, it's not a perfect uh, treatment system, but it helps to direct the general general necessity of it because if we were to look at, I, I keep using this term anterior knee pain, it means pain on the front of your knee. And at face value, you can treat that um, general area very similar, but there's a range of different um, kinds of anterior knee pain. So for instance, you have, I've, met, I've mentioned two patellar tendinopathy and quadriceps tendinopathy. So that's the pain at the bottom of the patella, pain at the top of the patella. And then there's another one called patellofemoral pain. And those three are often manage very similar, similarly, but they do have some differences. So for instance, you know, patellofemoral uh, pain doesn't necessarily respond quite uh, or doesn't necessitate going so slow. We have less research to support that the movement needs to be inherently slow. You just need to generally load the quadriceps. Whereas with those other two conditions, it's likely that going slow is much more important. Um, Similarly, with the 70% cutoff that I just discussed, because patellofemoral pain isn't a necessarily tendon-based um, presentation, it doesn't necessarily need to be above 70%. I'd still make a really strong argument that it should be, but it doesn't have to be. And you could follow that sort of similar paradigm for a lot of this stuff where having someone point to the area and um, giving you a general framework helps to decide, you know, what do I need to work on? Because... Again, whether someone has pain on the front of their knee versus the medial portion of their knee, 
that's going to, again, dictate, am I emphasizing more knee extension based stuff or am I emphasizing more hip adduction based stuff? Because if someone has pain on the medial portion of their knee, it might be really important for me to work on hip adduction, hip abduction. Whereas for someone with pain on the front side of their knee, the priority is going to be knee extension and some of the other stuff, but heavily on knee extension. And so just that general, where's the pain helps to create a reasonably um, useful category. And then from there, the second thing that I usually want to know is when does it hurt? Is it, and this, there's a few components to this, but number one, is it the moment that you start doing stuff? So for instance, you're playing volleyball and the first jump that you do, it hurts, or is it the 10th jump or is it the first jump and not the 10th jump? So as you get going, it goes away. Or is it that it gradually comes on to the session? All these kinds of variables, because again, that doesn't necessarily change where the pain is or what you need to focus on, um, but it might change to a degree. Are you emphasizing that you need to build someone's endurance more? Are you needing to build someone's power more? Are you needing to build someone's ability for repeated abouts? Because for instance, if someone has pain from the first rep and not later on when they're jumping, that's really associated with like tendon presentations. And so I might not change anything that I do. In contrast, if someone doesn't have pain at the start, but they have pain once they get into later jumps, later um, volleys, et cetera, that's going to likely tell me that the person might have poor endurance abilities. The person might have more need for general physical, like aerobic conditioning. The person might have um, low endurance in their actual quadriceps or whatever muscle we're discussing. And so that might change some of the ways that I would approach this. Um, and then is it with just fast movements or is it with slow movements or is it with all movements? Because if someone can, for instance, do a jump and not have pain, but if they do a heavy push against something and they have pain or vice versa, or if they have just have pain with everything, it will change to a degree where you think the pain might be factored in and what, what you would approach it with, because, you know, in this previous discussion we just had, I was really focusing on the exercise side of things, but you'd also modify activities that the person plays because if the person has symptoms at their 10th rep, then you might only have them do eight reps and then take a break and then ramp that up over time. Whereas if the person has symptoms at, you know, jump one and not at jump 10, we might have them do additional warm ups before getting into jump one. And you just approach these things slightly differently to reduce their symptoms and allow them to play better. Yeah, absolutely. There was a ton of really good stuff in there. <laughs> I'm trying to think of which one I would dive into. I've got so many questions. Um, love all that stuff. So I want to dive in a little bit about some of the misconceptions that people have. And this relates to a lot of the things that we've touched on so far. And I want to bring it together in some ways. So specifically thinking towards kind of the adult population, often we hear these narratives where it's, yeah, my, my doctor says I'm bone on bone. I'm, I've got a bunch of wear and tear in my knees and I, I don't have any cartilage left. So, you know, there isn't really anything I can do with exercise or any of these things because, you know, it's, it's structural. I need either surgery or I need to stop playing. What, and I, I know I'm, I'm leading you into this obviously, but uh, what's the problem with that kind of thinking? Yeah, the first thing would be we did, we spent a lot, a lot of time earlier discussing catastrophization, and I think this is a prime example. You know, the 
education about the condition is number one, usually straight up wrong. And while well-intentioned it is directly wrong. And then number two, the recommended way that you manage it is often not the best. So the first thing is like, if we're discussing people talking about wear and tear, what bone on bone, et cetera, they're discussing arthritis or osteoarthritis in particular. And osteoarthritis is a condition that is actually not associated with wear and tear, not in any way. We do not have, that is not a function of osteoarthritis. Um, what the person actually is experiencing is this condition that is actually impacted by their entire body where they are having an inflammatory process at their knee and having a number of contributing things that lead to the irritability of the joint. And that's very vague, I understand, but it's because there's a lot that can go into osteoarthritis. But when we look at osteoarthritis presentations, we see a number of different key things. Number one, individuals who have osteoarthritis uh, symptoms like present with it because there's two very distinct things between imaging and actual symptoms. You can find tons of people who have imaging findings of osteoarthritis and have no symptoms. On the flip side, you can find people who are reporting symptoms and do not have osteoarthritis findings on imaging. And then you have all of the people in the middle. And that's where it's really critical that we don't heavily focus on imaging. It has merit, but it doesn't directly tell you anything about what the person's potential is. It doesn't tell you about the, what their symptoms are. And it doesn't tell you about even whether or not they need surgery. Like it is extremely misleading. And that's where educating someone about what they're experiencing because of their imaging, I think is incredibly wrong. Um, it just is against all of the research that we have on this. There are tons of bodies of researchers, authors, organizations all over the world who are adamantly fighting this. And the problem is it just doesn't, not enough people read research, not enough people care about changing or updating practice. And this, this is such a huge problem. And there are so many people that are trying to change this, especially in Canada, like it's a huge thing in Canada. Um, there are a number of different groups working on it and hopefully we keep making some headway because I now have met a couple of uh, physicians in town who are aware of this, but I just continuously keep meeting people who are very nice and wonderful um, medical practitioners, but they are very misinformed and they guide people inappropriately. And it's unfortunate because um, when you give people this information at the end of the day, like you mentioned, it usually makes them stopping active. And when you look at, the likelihood of some, someone having symptoms, it is more associated with someone having lower activity. And this can be really hard for people, but sure, it is entirely possible that you go and do an activity and you have knee pain afterwards and you might have osteoarthritis. Absolutely. And, but you are more likely to have knee pain if you don't do any activities. And the challenge that you need to do is find an appropriate amount of activity that you can do and then ramp it up over time or do other stuff like we discussed with um, supporting your function to or supporting increasing your capacity to allow more function. This is particularly important because we see in knee osteoarthritis that individuals will often have a deficit in that knee extension strength that we're talking about. And it seems to coincide with a lot of people that also have that history of jumper's knee, et cetera. And so it's whether the person had jumper's knee a long time ago, they 
didn't have a sufficient amount of quad strength because they avoided and feared loading their quads, et cetera. Then over time they get more symptoms and then they start thinking that they have osteoarthritis and they have a weak quad as it is. And so just simply increasing their quad strength can make a huge difference. Another one is that, um, being overweight or obese is a heavily associated with more symptoms. And so if you are someone that is overweight or obese, or even on the slightly heavier side, there shows a consistent decrease in symptoms with weight loss. And it, I don't know the exact numbers on it, but it's, it's something like 10 pounds of weight loss can equal one to two, uh, one to two points on a 10 point scale for decrease in pain. Yeah. It doesn't take and a so, lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like right now I'm working with a, 50, I want to say he's like 53 year old who uh, again, plays like rec league basketball here. And he's been having tons of knee pain. He, he was diagnosed with osteoarthritis, came to see me for it. And he's about 30 ish pounds overweight. And across the last three months, he's lost around 10 pounds and his knee feels way better in addition to the other stuff we're doing. And it might not seem to the average person as like, that's the solution, but it can often have a lot of value. And then Again, other stuff like we see that those who have osteoarthritis are more likely to present with reduced sleep. They're more likely to present with increased loneliness. And I know like a lot of this stuff sounds like silly and not relevant in physical pain, but it's extremely, it's, it's very commonly found where, you know, people often have pain and then they change patterns and that change in pattern can actually increase your symptoms over time. For instance, you know, if, if volleyball was your outlet, your source of community, the way that you had a meaningful activity and enjoyment in life, like maybe you hate your job and you go play volleyball and that's what makes you happy. And then you stop playing volleyball. Well, now you have stopped your source of happiness. You've stopped your source of community. You stopped your source of um, people to talk to all those things. And that, that aspect, the um, isolation is again, heavily associated with increased symptoms, longer duration of symptoms. So then trying to navigate that and not, not ditch it is huge. And that's again, where I think that the common education, misinformation, et cetera, that's given about knee osteoarthritis and all those conditions is just very, very bad. Number one, Sam is fired the hell up and I'm here for it. All here for it. Um, and number two, like all these situations and, circumstance that you're talking about to me it kind of i I get reminded of like the weekend warrior types where it's you know desk job all day you really want to play maybe you play once during the week and you play a tournament in the weekend and you know you hurt your knee or hurt your back or shoulder or whatever it is and then the narratives become oh i guess i'm just too old for this and it's this strange conversation where you try to convince people that they need to train because they need to increase their capacity and then they say, no, I just, I tried playing and it hurt. So I guess I'm just done. And it's a mm-hmm. very interesting thing to see. And it's very sad a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what gets me fired up. Yeah. There are a lot of people, um, well, I should say this, within my echo chamber, there seem to be a lot of people that are working on this from a physician, physician, physician level, which is great to see. But yeah, there's a ton of physicians that have no idea about this. Physicians, clinicians, coaches especially because there's a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of unfortunate stuff out there so we're working we're getting there that's one of the points this podcast right i want to try to get more people hearing about these narratives so they can 
spread the good word. Um, I wanted to finish up with what can people do to reduce their risk of knee pain in the future? We've talked about some of these lifestyle factors. Are there any specific or non-specific recommendations that we can give uh, from a, a prevention standpoint? Absolutely. So number one, let's go. Uh, number one, check your sleep. Um, it's not sexy, but at the end of the day, it is just consistently found to be associated with pain. Uh, it's also associated with depression. It's also associated with performance. So if you want to crush it on the court, uh, we regularly see that sleeping more and better sleep does it. So where possible, I'd say minimum, you're looking at like seven hours a night. Ideal is eight to 10 hours a night and like good quality sleep. Um, next one, weight management. If you're overweight, do what you can to lose some weight. You know, find someone to help you find a coach, a nutritionist, whatever it is, get some support and get on the path of losing weight in a healthy way. Um, then the next one is train on a regular basis. This doesn't have to be a lot. It should, um, if you're focusing on lower body, for instance, you could very easily do something two times a week and it could take you 20 to 30 minutes. You could bust it out and it could make a world of a difference in how well your lower body functions, not just your knee, your entire lower body. It would reduce your likelihood of um, injuries and it could help to maximize your performance and also just make you way healthier because at the end of the day, there's a lot of conditions we didn't even talk about here, like different kinds of bone stress injuries, different types of um, uh, ankle injuries, et cetera. And these are all often heavily associated with um, poor functional abilities at different areas and lack of stimulus to them. And these can be easily addressed by consistent and regular training. So I'd say like, those are the major ones. Awesome. And when you say regular training, um, are we focusing on isolation stuff, more compound stuff, a hybrid of both? Does it matter? Um, if this is a general topic, so not like, you know, someone has a specific condition, I'd say it doesn't necessarily matter. I would shy more towards compound in that case. Yes. Um, you know, bias. Confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd have a mixture for sure, just because there's a certain few movements that I think are very beneficial. Like if, if I was going to keep this like super basic, I'd pick, you know, split squat of some kind, whether it's a flat ground split squat, front foot elevated split squat, rear foot elevated split squat. Then I would pick a Nordic curl and a calf raise um, as three top ones that most people in volleyball would benefit from. And then having more options kind of like those, uh, depending on the frequency, et cetera, that someone trains. But yeah, like the whole isolation thing is just, it depends on what the person is presenting with. You know, if you have a direct deficit in something, it has a lot of merit, I think, in directly addressing it. Again, like if someone has um, that anterior knee pain, there's a solid chance I'm going to have them doing things like squat variations, split squat variations, but I'm also likely going to have them doing leg extension variations just because I know that I need to directly load their quad. Quad. Good name for the title of the podcast, Load the Quad. Awesome. Okay. There was a ton of stuff in there. For those of you that made it to the end, this has been fantastic. Um, I will put links to uh, the ETH Rehab um, websites and uh, YouTube channels below. Sam, where can people get a hold of you if they have questions or want to see more of your content? I got an Instagram channel called dr.samspinelli. So Dr. Sam Spinelli. 
easiest option, send me a DM. Uh, if I don't get back to you, send me an email. My email is thestrengththerapist at gmail.com. I try to get back to as many DMs as I can, but uh, I got a big channel. So unfortunately I get a lot of requests. So email is usually safer. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, man. This has been amazing and uh, can't wait to see you next time. Oh, 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 o